Jason Owen here, stoking your zeal for the things of God in Christ. Last time I mentioned the importance of encouraging other people to ask questions, especially when it comes to the gospel. At the same time, we have to understand it's okay to not know everything. Like, you know, we may not understand the exact specifics behind how the dead are raised, right? Like, what's that going to look like exactly? When is that going to happen exactly? I don't know. I don't know. But I do trust that Jesus has the power to transform my lowly body and yours to be like his. The resurrection is going to happen. There are things we don't know. And yet, there are things that have been revealed to us through the word of God, through the gospel even. In previous studies, we learned that when it comes to life after death, immortality, that those things were once hidden from the foundations of the world, but have been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it does delight our God, I think, to reveal to us these hidden truths. We're talking a lot about the resurrection. We are still painfully aware that death is a part of our lives still. We can hardly wait for death to go away, and it will in God's timing. And until then, we're called to keep the faith. That's where we find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. The Apostle Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May God bless the, the reading and the hearing and the doing of his word. Verse 50, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. You think about our flesh and blood bodies that are buried in the ground, committed to the sea, cremated to the form of ashes, that form, that shape and form will not inherit the kingdom of God. But apparently, while flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, apparently flesh and bones can. You might remember in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 39, Jesus appearing in the midst of his disciples, resurrected from the dead. And he says, why do you guys look at me as if you've seen a ghost? A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, or flesh and bones, rather, as you see that I have. And then he says, hey, give me something to eat, and he ate in their presence. So he was still touchable, tangible. He wasn't a ghost or a phantom, but he was flesh and bones. Apparently, we will have a flesh, a different kind of flesh, and some sort of bones, some superstructure to help us to stand upright, to take a certain new shape and form. Simply put, we will be appropriately dressed 
for the kingdom of God. When he raises us from the dead, we will have our resurrected bodies made new. Flesh and bones, but different. How will that happen? Verse 51 is very intriguing. Behold, it's like, look, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's pretty cool. I tell you a mystery. That word mystery, a hidden truth. It's like Paul's leaning forward a little bit and he says, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret, something that's been hidden to everyone else until now. It's being revealed. The fact is we will not all sleep. Not every one of us will physically die, but we all shall be changed. We shall all be changed some way, somehow, Dead, buried in the ground, committed to the sea, cremated to ashes. The dead will be reunited with their bodies, resurrected to some new glorified bodies. And then those of us who haven't physically tasted death will also be changed. That's fascinating to me. To kind of further drive home that point, Paul gave some other specifics in his letter to the the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant. So he doesn't want us to be unaware or ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have physically died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The early church, it seems, was aware of the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus was coming back at any moment. And so as believers began to physically die, it seems that one of the concerns was, well, if Jesus were to come back right now and we get to reign with him, what about those who have physically died? What happens to them? Are they going to miss out on the second coming of Christ? And, and here Paul's telling us, no, we won't precede them. We won't go before them in the resurrection process. It's all going to happen very fast, I think Paul said, as we're reading in Corinthians. It's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But by the word of the Lord, Paul's telling us that when Jesus comes back, those who are asleep in Christ, those whose bodies are seemingly asleep, their spirit and their soul, who are very much alive and present with Christ, will come back with him and be reunited with their bodies. And then we who are alive and remain will have our bodies. He says, we shall all be caught up together with them in the clouds. That word caught up, the Greek word harpazo, it means to be like violently snatched away. So whatever we're doing at that moment of Christ's return, driving a car, having coffee with friends, flying in an airplane, God forbid flying that airplane, especially with passengers who may not know Jesus, will be instantaneously transformed into these new 
bodies. Man, that's really cool. Paul says, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to tell you something that's hidden. Not everybody is going to physically die, but we sh you know, still shall all be changed. He says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, like faster than you can blink your eye at the last trumpet. So, the change will happen instantly. It's at the last call to assemble, hence that trumpet sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall all be changed. Those who have died in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be changed with them. And so when this corruptible has put on corruption, he says in verse 53, and when the mortal puts on immortality, once the resurrection happens, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. It seems that he's paraphrasing a prophecy given through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 13 verse 14, where he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Paul says, like paraphrasing, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Hades means the grave. It means just the physical place where you go, where your body goes when you die. Where is your sting, death? God is saying through Hosea that he's going to ransom us from the power of the grave. He says, O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, O Hades, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God will show no pity when he destroys death. So whereas death creates a sense of permanence, God's promises, he promises that he will bring death to death when he raises dead to life. And man, we long for that. I've seen a lot of death. I've seen people so close to death being near to someone's loved one before they pass from this world to the next. I I count that, man, with the utmost honor and privilege to have had that opportunity. And it still doesn't feel right because it's, when I think about the service members who have given their lives, you know, who am I to spend these last moments with this person? Where is your sting, O death? I look forward to our Lord raising the dead to life and removing the sting of death. And then he says again, he has a lot of interesting things to say in this passage today. But the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. So what does that mean? I, I'm thinking he means the law of Moses. Is the law of Moses a bad thing? Not necessarily. There's a few other verses where I think Paul kind of shares his heart on this matter, one of which is Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verses 19 to 20. So whatever the law says, whatever the law of Moses says, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 commandments in the law of Moses, it says to those who are under the law of Moses, 
course. At the end of Leviticus, at the end of Numbers, at the end of Deuteronomy, he says over and over and over again in, in several places, these words were given to Moses, through Moses, really, to the people of Israel. This covenant and this law was given to Israel specific. So I'm not saying go and ignore the Ten Commandments. I'm just saying that the Ten Commandments, the first of 613 total, were given to the people of Israel. Why? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. How is that? God giving the law to the Israelites, giving them this opportunity to enter into a very intimate personal relationship with him, having the sacrifices and the priesthood and the shadows of the things to come that were really realized in Christ Jesus. It reveals to us right away that the Israelites couldn't keep the laws. They even created extra laws of their own so as to not break the laws and the commandments of God. And all they did was further condemn themselves and reveal how sinful they are naturally, revealing how sinful we are naturally, so that every mouth may be stopped. As the Gentiles, you and I, the nations, look in on the people of Israel and conclude, wow, they and we also really, really, really need salvation. We need a Savior. So all the world stands guilty before God, sinful in the need of salvation. And Paul said there in Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law reveals how sinful human beings are. A little bit more on that in Romans uh, chapter 7, beginning of verse 7. He says, and remember, Paul is a Jew of Jews. I mean, he's a committed, faithful, educated Israelite. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness except unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring, to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. And the commandment, holy and just and good. Has then what is good become uh, death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to try to summarize this. Basically, Paul saying that the law is not sin, but it really reveals the sin in us. It reveals the sin in us. It's like that sign on the bench that says, wet paint, do not touch. Well, had we been walking by and seen that bench, we may have sat down on it unknowingly, you know, uh, not knowing that it had been freshly painted and we might get paint on ourselves. But 
walking by that bench and seeing the sign on the bench saying, hey, wet paint, don't touch. What is it in us that makes us want to go over and touch it just a little bit to see if it's still tacky, to see if it is indeed wet? Is it wet? Is it fresh paint? Is it true? That's that's like the law. That's the law. Paul says, I, I really would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. And sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in, in me all manner of evil desire. You know, the fact that I just sinfully want what someone else wants to the point where I want it so much that I want it and I don't want them to have it. That's covetousness. When the law comes along and says you shouldn't covet, it just magnifies the fact that I am a covetous, sinful person. I don't need the law to tell me that I'm covetous, but it simply reveals the fact that I that I am. It points out that I'm in need of a savior, that my relationship is broken, that I deserve judgment. God's law is good. It reveals that we're not good. And the fact is we are at war with our fleshy, uh, natural desires, un- left unchecked. Um, we will just decay and fall further into sin and uh, serve ourselves. At the same time, while I am not the kind who's inclined to blame everything on the devil, we really should remember that we do have a legitimate enemy. Not just like one person or being or one evil spirit, but an army of principalities and powers, spiritual forces we call Satan, which means the adversary. So when we refer to Satan, it's more appropriate, I think, to say the Satan because it's the adversary. Sometimes we refer to Satan as the the devil, which means the accuser of the brethren. And that's right, too. I mean, the enemy, it seems, lives to, to present our faults and our sins and our wrongs to God even though they're paid in full in Christ, outside of Christ, you're in trouble. Outside of Christ, I'm in trouble. But in Christ, I'm righteous. I am as he is. And we see the devil's power. The devil's power over us is in the bondage of fear. It's in the bondage of our being afraid of death. Apart from Christ, we should fear death because judgment awaits. But as believers, we don't have to live in fear because Jesus died. He paid in full the penalty of our sin. And second, he defeated death in the resurrection. And I like how the author of Hebrews said it in Hebrews chapter 2. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Just like you and I have taken on flesh and blood and this human nature, even so he himself, Jesus, has shared in the same. He's taken on human flesh, that through death in the flesh he might destroy him, who had the power of death, and he says here, that is the devil. And doing that, he may release us, even though we were once afraid of death, and spent all of our lifetime subject to bondage, afraid of dying and how we were going to die. And not only that, but what judgment awaited us on the other side. We don't have to be afraid anymore. John, in his little letter there in 1 John chapter 4, he really drives home that point, that we don't have to be afraid of judgment 
He says, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, verses 17 to 19. I love that. I've used this verse, taken this verse, received it, and even shared this verse out of context in the past because I've got plenty anxieties and plenty uh, fears to wrestle with. And I go to the Word of God to encourage myself and to encourage, encourage others. And this is a great verse, right? Perfect love casts out fear. Well, we have to understand the context in which it's written. John says very clearly that love has been matured among us, perfected among us, in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. This text, this context here, is in the context of judgment. Because as he is, John says, as Jesus is righteous and in good standing before the Father, so are we in this world. Just as he is, so are we. We're like him. We're in good standing in Christ. And there's no fear in love. We know he loves us. And we love him back because he first loved us. If you are not in Christ, you are not like Christ in this world. And you should, therefore, be afraid because you've not been made perfect in love. You've not been perfected love. You've not tasted the real love of God. God will not blindly love sinners to the point where he insists they go to heaven. God loved us through Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins and is raised from the dead. And if we trust in him and receive Jesus as Lord, confess him as master, repent of our sins, turn from our wicked ways, we will be perfect in him. God will see us as perfect in him. But outside of him, we deserve judgment and the wrath of God. But thanks be to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, finding our way back there, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, right? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a really important point to drive home, I think, is that our God gives us the victory. If he didn't have the victory, it wouldn't be his to give. And so we thank him. And we understand that we aren't fighting for victory. We want victory in our lives so badly. We have to understand we have victory in our lives. And anything other than that is deviation from victory. And so we fight not for the victory, but from victory even in Christ. Even though it may not seem like we're victorious, even though it may seem like we're not getting any traction in Christ, we're fighting from victory. Praise be to God who gives us the victory. It's his to give and he gives it to us. What a blessing. Therefore, wrapping it up in verse 58, therefore, or because of this, because of what? Because of the victory given us, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. There's a reason and a purpose for our work in Christ. And so driving this home, here's the first thing I want to share with you. It is God's delight to reveal his truths to us. God delights in revealing hidden truths to us through the gospel 
And we, in turn, get to share those truths with others through the gospel. Psalm 25, verse 14, it's written, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. If you want to know anything, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, who revere him, who respect him, and keep his commandments. God will show us his covenant. He will show us what he has agreed to do. When we draw near to him, when we fear him, we obey him, God will reveal his secrets to us. In this case, the secret, the hidden truth of the resurrection of the dead and the living. Not everyone will physically die. Some of us will be alive when he returns, but we shall all be changed. That's pretty cool. And the second thing we have to keep in mind is that everything is going to happen in his timing. We want death to death right now. We want death to be a thing of the past, eradicated, done. But his delay, his delay, Jesus tarrying, right? We say his, his waiting, his not coming back right now, really means salvation for those who would face judgment right now. I am reminded of Peter's second epistle there in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, Beloved, looking forward to these things, these things being everything he just said prior to this, which was the day of the Lord, him coming as a thief in the night, and, and there being a new heavens and a new earth and so on. He says, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. In verse 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Long-suffering, like the fact that our Lord puts up with our shenanigans, with people's shenanigans, with all of the, the disgusting things that happen in our world, deserving judgment and wrath. He suffers long. He waits. Even though we we get on our high horse and we hate evil so much and we want God to deal with it right now, the fact he does not come back and deal with it right now is really a sign of his salvation. He wants those people who are lost and blinded by Satan to repent of their sins and to submit to his lordship and receive his salvation. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And finally, not only is it God's d- delight to reveal his truths in us, not only will everything happen in his timing, but he's called us here to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This implies that something and someone is trying to move us toward disloyalty. That's the opposite of steadfastness, is disloyalty. Something or someone is trying to move us toward disloyalty and or to produce meager efforts for Christ. For example, our sinful nature, left to ourselves, again, left to ourselves in our sinful nature, not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, not following the leading of the Holy Spirit, we will just have the spiritual entropy. We will be disloyal to God. And when we are disloyal to God, we are disloyal to others, to people, to the institutions we've promised to, to serve. And, and, um, and we start backsliding. That's why he's saying, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Left to ourselves and our sinful nature, our flesh, we aren't abounding. We aren't producing abundance 
forgotten. We're producing, at best, some meager, lame efforts that we would be ashamed to have, to, you know, kind of hand over to present to the Lord. And not only do we have our sinful flesh, but we have the enemy, that devil, the adversary we call Satan, that we're fighting tooth and nail. So fight tooth and nail. We fight with truth. And there's no greater truth than the truth of God's word. So fight from victory, not for it. Remember, let God be true, but every man a liar. Be good Bereans and search for yourselves whether the things I'm sharing with you today are true or not. And for goodness sakes, be bold, be courageous.